Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, an encore of my August conversation with Blair L.M. Kelly about the history of the Black working class. Though the term working class, Kelly says, conjures images of ruddy white men in hard hats or white waitresses in Midwestern diners, Black people are more likely to be working class and union members. And a closer look at the roots of the Black working class and their distinct experience of coming out of enslavement carries powerful lessons for a better future for working people of all races, whether white, indigenous, Latino, or Asian. Kelly's book is called Black Folk. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Historian Blair Ellen Kelly's deep dive into the history of America's Black working class is personal. It's grounded in the stories of her own ancestors. Her new book is called Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. And in it, Kelly writes, I am the descendant of the enslaved people who labored in Georgia, Virginia, South Carolina, and Maryland. I am northern-born, but raised by southern-born working-class people. My relationship to these stories is not as a sociologist or only as a historian, but as a member of the family. Kelly is the Joel R. Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies, Director of the Center for the Study of the American South, and Co-Director of the Southern Futures Initiative at the University of North Carolina. Welcome to Forum, Professor Kelly. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Really good to have you. Hope you're doing okay with the storms there. (laughs) Oh, they they sort of scooted by us, which I'm thankful about. (laughs) Good. Well, such a beautiful way to explain your connection to the people in this history of the Black working class that you have done. And actually, I would love to just start by having our listeners meet your family the way that readers do in your book, like your great-grandfather, Solicitor Duncan, his son, your grandfather, John D., and your grandmother, uh, Brunel. So start with Solicitor, who, who was a sharecropper after emancipation, right? H- how did that go for him? So Solicitor, I, I begin the, the, the book with him because I think of this story and his story of um, struggling to support his family despite his skill, despite his vision, uh, despite the strength of his family, um, having to flee the South. Um, and flee the place of his birth. And that's a foundational story for my family. So I I really wanted to begin there because I think it explains so much, um, not only about who we are, but about the struggles that so many African-American families had gaining a foothold after the emancipation, decades after the emancipation. Yeah. Um, I mean, just being able 
to be treated fairly in the segregated South, working land that essentially could not be worked, but without the incredible effort that he put into it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He was, um, you know, he was really brilliant in how well he understood the land, um, how he knew how to farm it well. And then at the end of the season, uh, the landholder told him that he owed money. Um, he knew better. He, he had done the math on the value of the crop, and he was aware of those kinds of things. Um, but he couldn't fight back. He couldn't say, no, you're wrong, uh, without threatening his own life in that interaction. And so he knew that the only choice he had was to run. And I remember my mother telling me that story, you know, that they had to run like slaves. And she said they were free, but they had to run like slaves. And so I think she always wanted me to understand um, the, the dignity that was at the heart of who my ancestors were, uh, but the injustices that were constant, um, intergenerational, that they had suffered yeah. in getting a start in life. Like John D., your grandfather wanted to be a carpenter, but would not get hired even though he had the skills and, and watched white men get hired for that role. What was John D. forced to do, essentially? He was forced to, uh, you know, just work in that factory as a person cleaning up. So he was sweeping up the sawdust and making boxes for furniture, but he wanted to be a carpenter. And younger, less skilled men were, were getting hired because of their race. Um, and so he realized pretty quickly that um, working in that factory in Thomasville, North Carolina, wasn't going to be a solution. The strange thing is after he migrates, uh, they move to Philadelphia. He seeks out the Carpenters Union there. Um, it's an all, mostly all-white union, and they didn't want a black member. They allowed him to pay dues, and then they would send him to jobs far, far away from his home, um, where he couldn't you know, easily get transportation. Um, and when he would say something about it, they would tell him to quit. Um, so he was frustrated. He had the skills. He built his own home. He built his brother's home. Uh, they worked together to do projects. Uh, they were extremely skillful. That, that, that home still stands today. Wow. Uh, but he wasn't allowed to really ply his trade simply because of his race. No. Similarly, your grandmother, Brunel Rayford Duncan, had high hopes um, for the North, I think, had so much that she wanted to accomplish, but was consigned essentially to household work or to being a maid? Absolutely. In the, in the first decade after she, she migrates North, she, she has a high school diploma, and she was very proud of that. She was yeah. an avid reader. She was a brilliant woman. And um, she couldn't get a job doing anything other than being a living maid uh, away from my mother, away from her husband during the week while she was cleaning for and, and caring for the children of another family. Um, and so uh, that was a story she didn't share with me when I was really little. She uh, had finally gotten a job at the Philadelphia Navy Yard after more than a decade of doing domestic work, and she was so proud of that. Um, but the roots of that, that the the struggle that she had as a young woman migrating for the first time, I think, are, are mirrored among so many who migrate and become um, something other than they, what they wanted. They wanted different kinds of opportunities, and, and they had, didn't have the chance. Why don't you think she told you about that domestic work that she had done when you were a kid? 
I think she wanted me to to think of myself as as empowered and liberated and um, free from all of this. She was so excited by what had happened in the civil rights movement and so inspired by the change that she had hoped America had experienced. And so she didn't want me to to think of her as part of some kind of past. Um, I think a lot of people carry some degree of shame about the things that they suffered, even though those things didn't um, weren't weren't they weren't causing those those things. Yeah. Um, but she, she never wanted me to be ashamed of working hard. Um, she still helped a, a, an elderly woman in her neighborhood, and she cleaned and cooked for her. Um, she, I, I believe, she took in laundry at different points in her her life that I can recall. And she, um, she kept a farm on her land, but she she wanted me to feel free and empowered. Huh. Um, I think she thought that that story would make me feel ashamed, but I'm, I'm not ashamed. I'm very proud. <laughs> no, of no, no, that definitely comes through. We're talking with Blair, Blair Kelly about her book Black Folk: The Roots of the Black Working Class. And listeners, is what Blair Kelly is saying about the Black working class does it resonate with you? Does your family history include? someone or something like she is describing. You can email by telling forum at kqed.org. You can post on our social channels by telling us at KQED forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786-866-733-6786. Well, you go further back, uh, Blair, than, than those first generations after emancipation um, in your description of the roots of the black working class, you actually introduce us to your great-great-grandfather, Henry, who was enslaved. Tell us more about what you learned about him, who I understand was a skilled blacksmith. I I was amazed to go on this journey um, to, to, to discover him, to find him in the historical archive. Um, I think because my family had fled Georgia, they, I didn't know any details beyond Georgia and this, the original story that I begin the book with. And so discovering Henry was a, was a joy um, and also, you know, really a challenge to see your ancestor in bondage in the, the archive is, is, is really something. So Henry was most likely born in the state of Georgia. Um, his mother may have been transported from the state of Virginia by their slaveholders um, as they moved um, more westward and, and south southwest, I guess. And to a place called Elbert County, Georgia. And there I can see him held in bondage um, throughout his life in the slave censuses. Not by name, but I assume um, he's listed in the census as a free man, as a mulatto. Um, and then I can see um, a mulatto person, it's a slur now, but a, someone listed as mulatto in the slave schedules, who's exactly his age, held by his owner. Um, so I, I, I believe that is him. Um, that's all that we have. The enslaved were not listed by name, you know, just as you wouldn't list any other property by name. They were considered less than human, and so and not even given that dignity. Um, but I can also see him, um, I discovered him in the will of his slaveholder. Um, my training told me that I wasn't going to see his name there, Listed, he the, his slaveholder held more than two hundred people in bondage. Um, he would not list them all. I'm like, uh, he's not going to be there. Why am I wasting my time? But then I sort of felt a prompting in my spirit to to go ahead and read, and I discovered his name there along with the term a blacksmith. 
and he was being passed down to a son because of his skill, because of his value as an enslaved person. Um, not listed there was his wife or his children. So I wondered if that's, that will had been executed, what would have happened to him. Yeah. And then I also discovered him in freedom. I discovered him registering to vote mm -hmm. um, and as a free man, marking uh, the line with X uh, in place of his name. He was not able to read or write um, because of his status as an enslaved person. Um, but he, he was determined to be citizen. And so that was a joy to find. Yeah, a joy to find a mark by Henry's hand. I did wonder what that, that must have felt like for you. Oh, my gosh. I just felt, you know, so moved to have a document that I know was marked by his hand and um, that real connection to a person I had never been told about and, and was able to find in my own research. So um, it was really incredible. You point out that when Henry was freed, he adopted the last name of his slaveholder, Rutger. And this was not an uncommon practice. Why did he do that, you think? I I believe, you know, historians are, are, are telling us that it's a way of marking place. It's a way of saying, I'm from this community of enslaved people. And that community we know is so valuable. Um, people thought of their folks as home folks, right? So you may not have been blood kin to everybody you were held in bondage with, but that connection, that memory, that survival that you have together, um, choosing that name was a way to honor it. We're talking about the roots of America's black working class with historian Blair L. M. Kelly. And we'll hear, from, we'll hear from you and more from Kelly after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Historian Blair Elm Kelly writes, Our national mythos leaves little room for black workers or to glean any lessons from their history. Well, Kelly's latest book, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, offers a corrective focusing on the lives of black working people, including her own family members. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Does what Blair has been saying about the black working class resonate with you? Or does your family history include someone like she is describing? 
would you call yourself or your family working class? What does the term working class mean to you? Or what do you think it means in our culture? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. And you can call us at 866-733-6786. So we were talking about your great-grandfather who, or great-great-grandfather, Henry, who'd been enslaved and uh, and about some of the discoveries that you were able to make about his life and about his freedom. But one of the things that was also so striking about his story is that in it, you remind us that enslaved people were very aware of the monetary value assigned to their bodies and that there was power in withholding that value, Um, that in withholding it to some degree, there were the seeds of of a form of labor negotiation? Absolutely. I think, you know, we tend to remove the agency, the awareness of the enslaved, um, but they understood where they were and they understood what happened when they were auctioned off. They understood that those who had skills um, had more value. If you were a carpenter, a mason, if you were a laundress, if you were a cook, you had more value. And so uh, the enslaved understood the market around them in their own bodies, that their children, that their families could be traded away from them on the basis of those things. And so they were keen um, about what that meant um, in enslavement and brilliant about uh, trying to use whatever leverage they had in freedom um, uh, to, to, to gain that value as, as free people, too. Yeah, like even in escape. But you also, Blair, don't romanticize it. I mean, mm. given the constraints, what was required to withhold labor could be extremely harsh. Like you tell a harrowing story of a woman who, who chopped off her hand to avoid being sold away. Right? Yes, she was a valuable enslaved woman. She was going to be sold away from her children. Um, and she knew that if she was uh, gravely injured and, and couldn't work in the same way, she, she would have no value and wouldn't be sold. And um, so, uh, you know, I can't even imagine the, the choice to uh, mutilate your own body in order to be a mother and to be a parent, and to never uh, experience being stripped away from your children, uh, a powerful reminder of um, the, the, the understanding that the enslaved had about what was going on around them. Yeah. Well, let me go to some calls. Caller Diane in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Diane. You're on. Hi. Um, I would like to, I missed part of it because I was talking to your, your producer, so I hope you didn't cover what I'm about to say if you want to know who's really working, get up early in the morning mm. and see who's on those first buses going to work. Mm-hmm. I came from New Orleans after, before, after Katrina, during the Katrina, I came here. Mm. But I used to work construction. I was one of the only women on my job, and I went to work because I worked. I gave them labor for my paycheck. I didn't give them nothing else. So they would give me jobs, like you're talking about giving your your, your uh your great-grandfather jobs way out so he couldn't get there. I mm-hmm. used to hitchhike. Mm-hmm. They saw me on the highway with my hard hat and my work boots and my, my tool belt, and I'd hitchhike way out in the swamp to jobs. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you something else. 
You get up in the morning, those first buses are filled with black folks. And people get on the bus and say, good morning. And we mm. get up and go sit down. And all the way downtown, people say, good morning. The whole bus says, good morning back. In mm. New Orleans, mm-hmm. black men were sick and tired of white media showing black people. When they show black people, they show black men standing on the corner drinking. They show white women sitting on the corner, sitting on the porch drinking. They were sick and tired of their labor being denied by mm-hmm. media. Mm-hmm. They formed a social and pleasure club called Men of Labor. This was years ago, 30 years ago. And they parade through the city every year at Labor Day. Mm-hmm. They parade the men of labor. And throughout the year, they have all kind of workshops and things to get young people to get go to work. I used to say, there's in the in the phone book, in the yellow pages, seven pages of labor organization. And I would tell young men and young women, especially, to get into a union, you have to have two things. Your birth certificate and a diploma or GED. Know that the union doesn't want you. The best way to do it is to get two or three of y'all to join together, study mm-hmm. together, because they're going to try to flunk you out know that they're going to give you the dirtiest work. And I used to Mm -hmm. tell them, believe me, when you get the dirtiest, filthiest work, then you're going to learn more than the little white kids that sit in the office all day and smoke. And I will tell you, I'm serious. In New Orleans, black people worked in the French Quarter. Black people worked in the hotels. After Mm -hmm. Katrina, you go back, it's all Spanish. So don't don't get uh, construction, construction. Look at the unions here in San Francisco. They're all white. All you ever see black people do is with a broom or standing there holding a sign saying slow or stop. Well, Diane, it's incredible to hear your experiences and your insights. There are a couple threads from what Diane was saying, Blair, and feel free if you just wanted to also respond to Diane's call, but just also just about the way that black labor and what was happening the black working class were constantly obscured by media and by other depictions i'm so appreciative of diane's call um of her recalling the the struggle that she had to um, do the work she wanted to do of the the burden the extra burden she had to carry to get to work of the legacy of organizing of, of black men and women in the city of new orleans um, the ways in which that work is invisible. If you don't, if you're not on that bus, if you're not up in the morning, the way that in which we ignore it, uh, the way in which we do not acknowledge it. Uh, for me, this came home um, in a particular kind of way when I was writing the book because we were in the midst of the pandemic and uh, white collar folks could stay home and shelter in place and stay safe with their families. And the essential laborers of this country, black and brown people, um, had to go to work. And there was no knowledge about what was going on or how to stay safe. And they they carried a heavier burden in that moment. And so I'm so appreciative of her testimony, um, not only of the struggle, but of the community. Uh, I love when she said you would get on that bus and each person Mm -hmm. would speak to each other. That is how people survive. Those are the networks that I'm excited to to delineate some of in black folk. Um, and so I'm, I'm very thankful for, for that. Yeah, the networks, you know, one of the experiences that you share um, 
are the experiences of the washerwomen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you write that in 1900, black women were 11% of the population and 65% of the washerwomen. Who were they? Tell us what they did. That's a crazy statistic, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and you have to remember this is nationally, right? So there's there's many places where African-Americans are not even located. Um, so they're, they're probably 100% in so much of the country in order for that statistic to work. Um, washerwomen were women who took in laundry from mostly white homes and brought that laundry back to their own homes and washed it during the course of the week, washed it, dried it on clotheslines, um, pressed it, and then returned it back to their customers. It seems like a simple, straightforward exchange, but it is the result of uh, negotiations in the, the first generation of emancipation that black women are able to do that work the way that they want to uh, do it in their own backyards, in their own alleyways, behind their own homes, um, because they wanted to be away from white supervision and the danger of sexual assault that came from working inside white households in a time when you know, they could not uh, call the police or say that someone had assaulted them. Um, they would be easily victimized. And so uh, by choosing to be a washerwoman, you created space for yourself, uh, the space to care for their own households and to raise their own children. And they were um, an amazing testimony uh, to the to resilience and the collectivity, even amongst people who were paid very little. Can you talk about some of the ways that they were able to set the terms of their employment using that collectivity? My One of my favorite things that I discovered was a, a group of women in Jackson, Mississippi in 1866, just the very first year after the emancipation, form a union uh, with a set of demands. And they're demanding a, a living wage and the space to do that work away from white homes. And uh, they, they're, they're collective, they're pulled together, um, they're organized. And so often when I was in school, we learned that unions, you know, were the result of uh, consciousness raising, that they had to, you had to teach workers how to think about their labor and train them and all that kinds of stuff. And here we have a group of women who the year before were um, considered property, but they understood completely what they needed to do to negotiate, to form a union, um, and to demand uh, what was rightfully there. So it's a reminder that um, washerwomen were really powerful in that, you know, they had a monopoly on this kind of work. White women um, did not favor doing their own laundry. There was a amazing story of a, a man who, when, uh, who owned a plantation, had two daughters, and all the enslaved people, uh, of course, left in the wake of the war and he was left there with his family. And he, um, even though elderly, was doing the laundry himself because he didn't want to shame his daughters um, by having them be seen doing laundry. So stigmatized was the work. Um, black women used that stigma um, to gain power, to gain control, and to set the terms on, on how they would do the work. Yeah. Like when they could expect it, and yes. what amounts, and yes, I mean, <laughs> and holidays, and yeah, all kinds holidays. of things. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I loved was the how you describe just the inventiveness, the scientific, and uh, you know, skill 
that went mm-hmm. into washing the clothes so well and how despite all that it was yeah considered less than yes absolutely i mean uh washer women used um things around their environment to create the things they needed to do the work uh so they used reclaimed um, wood for their fires. They they created their own wash pots and sticks. They made tools for wringing the water out of clothes. They made their own soap. Um, they created uh, concoctions of clay that would raise stains out of garments. They pressed things by hand with an iron. You know, it's a reminder that irons used to be made of iron um, and hot all over. <laughs> so they, they knew how to use a hot piece of iron dipped in coal um, to, to press things and not to burn them. Um, there was tremendous skill. You know, now we talk about um, soap being an artisanal practice, right? So they, they, were, they were artisans, and they were um, wise about how to make uh, dirty clothes clean in a time before modern technology. And so um, they were considered the, the, the lowest of the rung, the most menial of labor, and yet they had all this wisdom and knowledge and skill that was passed down generation over generation. We're talking with Blair Kelly, author of Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, director of the Center for the Study of the American South and co-director of Southern Futures at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, also Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies. We're learning about some of the people who made up the black working class after the end of slavery, people who labored outside the factories, the uh, the washerwomen, Um, And you can share any stories that uh, this is reminding you of, or if you call yourself or your family working class, or what you think working class in our culture means these days, 866-733-6786, the number to call, the email address forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED Forum. One of the other um, roles that you write about so vividly are the Pullman porters. Um, Mm. And also another entity that uses their monopoly, takes advantage of their monopoly to be able to act collectively. But how did they do that? How did they turn a job that was essentially supposed to conjure a romantic version of the antebellum South Mm -hmm. into a collective strength? Um, So George Mortimer Pullman, the founder of the Pullman Company, he invented the idea of the luxurious sleeping car um, for people who were traveling cross-country on trains. And I guess previously, people just had simple little rough cots and things like that. And and he uh, envisioned that you know, these spaces could be luxurious. And so black men, for him, were the, the heart of this vision of a, you know, an antebellum plantation on, on, on wheels traveling across the country. So he hired all black men and later black women to assist white passengers in these spaces. Um, So accidentally, he's creating a cadre of um, well-traveled, well-educated, you had to have the basics of an education to to serve as a porter. Uh, They were around, you know, captains of industry who were traveling across country who could afford these fancy sleeping berths. And so they were rubbing shoulders with the elite of the country. So um, they become leaders themselves. Um, They are listening carefully, they're paying attention, and they're building networks of solidarity that enable um, the Great Migration to happen, that uh, allow northern communities of African Americans to share information with with southern folks, 
Um, they're bringing black newspapers back and forth. They are literally helping people find employment and places to stay. Um, they are doing the work of change. And, and then they end up organizing themselves into a, a union so that the, the job itself could be less grueling and be more steady in its pay and, and have some basic boundaries and rules uh, that made it uh, a job that was more livable. Do you want to talk about their role in really helping to connect and fuel civil rights movements efforts? Absolutely. Um, they selected a man named A. Philip Randolph, who was a, a socialist writer. Um, I believe his brother had done some Porter work at one point in his life. So he was not a Porter himself, uh, but he understood the work. He understood their cause. Um, he was key to turning this into a union and then a movement. Um, a. Philip Randolph understood uh, the power that the Porters could have as a union. And so he fights for, for 10 years to get it recognized federally, and it finally is recognized in 1937. But immediately he turns that toward a, a, what he called the March on Washington movement, where he was demanding rights for black workers across the board, uh, access to federal employment on an equal basis, not regarding their race. Um, he's pushing FDR for civil rights in that moment, and FDR does it because of the, the war going on. Um, but the power of that March on Washington idea continues, and he continues to advocate for the porters to, to push for their, their wider civil rights um, altogether, and they, they do it. They, they, they take the skills. I don't think he could have stopped them from doing it, right? Uh, they take the skills that they know from organizing as porters, uh, the community connections, the, the advocacy that the whole black community has for their work, um, and they turn it into civil rights. And the March on Washington of 1963 that we just celebrated the anniversary of, um, it starts with those Pullman porters. Yep. We're talking about the black working class, its origins and its evolution, the challenges they faced bringing their skills to bear in a racist society, but the networks of resistance they formed. Blair Alam Kelly's book is Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, and we'll have more with her and you after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the Black working class. And would you, a listener, call yourself or your family working class? What does it mean to you? What do you think it means in our culture today? Blair L.M. Kelly is 
Joel R. Williamson, Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she also directs the Center for the Study of the American South and co-directs Southern Futures. And uh, you can reach us by posting on our social channels, emailing forum at kqed.org, or by calling 866-733-6786. So, Blake Hill, you've written that today in America, the term working class usually conjures images of white men in hard hats or Midwestern diners and white waitresses and so on who work there. Um, Or in other words, that the working class is synonymous with the white working class. And... And in trying to explain Trump's rise, you also note that we become fixated in this idea of a disgruntled or left behind white working class voter. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what impact you think this has. I think it's an erasure of the presence of others. Um, the first point, important point to clarify is that, you know, Trump's voters are not really centered in the white working class. They are really mm. a, a non-college educated white middle or upper middle class. Um, and so the demographics don't bear out that um, connection as well as people think it does. And the other piece is that um, we don't associate black Americans with the working class in ways that really devalue our role in the, the upbuilding of this country and that erase the kind of work that we do um, and remove us from the realm of discussion about what is needed, um, what the working class are demanding in this current moment. Um, and, and the erasure is, is, has political damage. I mean, we're not thinking, um, we're not centering in certain states uh, the presence of the majority of the working class if we're not talking about um, black and certainly brown communities as well. Well, Jen on Discord writes, really glad to hear Professor Kelly on the show today. I really appreciate that she's writing and talking about black working class. The narrative in this country about class is very much rooted in whiteness. Black working class, working poor folks are often not seen in class struggle, and that is because of how racism isn't acknowledged or intersected with class discussions. I grew up working poor, working class in upstate New York. My father, who is black, moved to Binghamton, New York from Warner Robins, Georgia. My dad worked at Kodak and GAF, both factories that were in Binghamton. He was part of a large community of black men who worked at both of those factories. As Binghamton shifted from being a working class city due to globalization and factories shutting down, my dad moved back to Warner Robins, where he, quote, retired, though he still works part time delivering new cars from Toyota. It's interesting hearing Jen just talking about how often not seen in class struggle, and that is because Mm -hmm. of how racism is acknowledged or intersected with class discussion. Yes, you point out, Blair Kelly, how work is sort of taken out when you talk about working class black people who were, you know, making ends meet, that really it's often viewed or described as as poor or low-income. Absolutely. Um, we, it's, it's amazing the way the lexicon just doesn't um, even make any acknowledgement about it. And, and the invisibility of black life is, is really profound. Um, I think in part, black people have had to be historically less visible in terms of their networks and the power of their insights. 
uh, in order to stay safe as enslaved people during segregation and the height of lynching, um, really broadcasting all of what they think and do uh, wasn't a safe way to survive. Um, and then much of black life happens away from the gaze of whites. And so when national media is, is creating stories about meaning in the working class, they don't know and they're not aware. Um, and I think the, the literature um, you know, ends up skipping over um, black people. And so I'm hoping that uh, this is the beginnings of a corrective to that. Yeah, I'm struck by your description of how people also don't want to share it for very understandable reasons, like their own experiences for their own safety and so on. But I do find that, yes, in struggle, there is often a reluctance by older generations mm -hmm. to want to talk about it with you. Mm -hmm. And you've shared a little bit about, you know, your grandmother's reasons and why you think she did. Is there anything else you'd want to add to that? I think also um, we have, you know, in our current society, we have these narratives about black excellence or, um, you know, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams or I, this ain't your grandmother's movement and all this stuff like that. Um, and I, I, I understand the impulse um, to to talk about consumptions or, or material success as, as you know, uh, fun markers of the current moment. And yet, um, my grandmother lived her wildest dreams when she was able to get some land and farm it and, and raise her family and see me grow up on that land. Um, my grandmother's movement was incredible. Like, I, I, I should be so, such an advocate. I should be um, such an organizer as uh, the women of previous generations. And so I, I wonder if we're losing an admiration for work, if we're saying that, you know, only the sort of material, white-collar, uh, corporate kind of space is success um, and, and, and not honoring what our ancestors survived and, and, and how it was the building blocks of who we are and how we as a society um, are dependent on working people to live day by day. Um, you know, who is going to care for us when we are sick, who is when we are elderly, who is cleaning and cooking our meals, who, is, who are, are picking in our fields, who who are taking our trash and disposing of it? Um, who, who's cleaning when we leave our offices during the day at, at, at night? Uh, who, are, who are constructing the things that we are dependent on and the society that we're dependent on? And so um, I, I was always taught that, you know, a workman is due do his honor. And um, mm. I, I'm just so glad that I can be part of maybe waking us up to see uh, the layers that are undergirding us right now, historically and in the present. Yeah. Let me go to caller Ben in Oakland. Hi, Ben. You're on. Hi, good morning. Um, I just wanted to sort of shout out the discussion about the Pullman Porters. Um, it was really exciting for me to hear that on the radio. I, I worked on the National Monument Campaign to protect Pullman as a National Monument site under the Obama administration. 
And I found that to be a really gratifying experience, both learning about the history of Pullman porters and also the work that the Obama administration did to sort of center its conservation ethic in telling the stories of sort of, uh, you know, non-white heroes of American history, um, making sure that the National Park Service represents, you know, all corners of American history. And I think that the Pullman story is a really important part of it. So, you know, right there on the south side of Chicago, there's a monument that tells the story of Pullman, and I think that's really neat. So thank you for um, shout, you know, sharing that story today on the air. Oh, Ben, well, thank you for sharing that. I'm glad, I'm glad that you enjoyed hearing about it. Um, I don't know, Blair, if you wanted to add anything to Ben. But. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the ways in which we, our public history sites, um, our national sites, are thinking about the roles of, of black working classes is so important um, as a, a way of re-educating um, the community about what's happened. Um, public history sites are some of our most trusted sources still among people when we do surveys, so um, they are valuable, and I, I cheer that. That, that the legacy of that effort, um, and I'm I'm glad that you know in um, Black folk I had the chance to really um, probe what it, what the experience, the personal experience of being a Pullman porter was like, not just the the accolades, but also um, the everyday grind that the work was, and and how valiant those men really truly were. At one point, you write that the black working class is a bellwether of the health of democratic citizenship in America. And I was wondering if you could say more about that. How so? I mean, it's it's amazing that, you know, black folk experience the things that suddenly become the topics of conversation um, in the next generations. Um, when we look at... Uh, the, the challenge of, of urban space and um, flight that, that happens because black people are moving into cities, of the ways in which cities' infrastructures are crumbling. Uh, they, they're suddenly becoming national problems. Um, the burden that the drug crisis um, wore on urban communities in the 70s and 80s suddenly became um, opioid crisis and, and concern about health care uh, for those addicted uh, when it became uh, white and, and working class and poor communities who were experiencing it. Um, the, the concerns about the environment of climate change are uh, often at the forefront of the ways in which um, black land um, has been deteriorating and has been poisoned by industrial um, um, uh, refuse and wash um, in ways that now we're all really thinking about. And so um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the ways in which the, the, the strength of um, a working class could harness and shift things on a political level. Um, looking at the state of Georgia, it was, you know, black working class people who um, made a, a deep South state um, have two Democratic senators. And so um, it was by paying attention to those working class communities um, as voters, that that, that that shift could happen. We're talking with Blair Ellen Kelly about her new book, The Roots of the Black Working Class, Black Folk. And um, you are listening to Forum. Let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're touching on this, but 
You know, as you point out in your book, black people are, of course, not the only working class folk whose labor is invisible in the U.S. How do you think a better understanding of their stories, a more accurate and thorough understanding of the experiences of the black working class makes things better for everybody who is working class, especially, I mean, everybody generally, but particularly the working class? I think that the working class in general have so many lessons to teach. And the things that would be of benefit for the folks I'm talking about in black folk would be of benefit for so many different working class communities. Um, our nation has this uh, proclivity to now attack unions, to devalue them as valuable resources for workers, uh, just that somehow they slow down productivity or creativity. But we're in a moment where we're reminded that unions have important things to say that when things collectively erode uh, to the point where people can't take care of themselves anymore, um, we have to come together and through collectivity, through community, we, we can we can build strength. And so um, black people, that's how we were still here. That's how we survived over time. And so um, looking at the black working class is to, to look at those lessons of collectivity, of strength, of resilience, of a clear-eyed focus on what is necessary um, and how to think about labor and, and, and power in, in this country. Um, it's not an accident that we're at the, the heart of the lessons that need to be learned um, for everyone in this generation about the value of people's labor and the right of people to have living wages, to have decent health care, to be able to afford somewhere uh, to, to purchase a home, to educate their children. Uh, those basic things are necessary. And, and, and black people work for them for a really long time and, and can be great models for, for all of us as Americans. Let me go to caller Salmon in Richmond. Hi, Salmon. Join us. Hi. Thank you for the conversation today. I grew up in a small community, Dilton, Pennsylvania. It was a steel town. My father... <clears throat> grandfather and all of the men in my family worked there in steel mill and um, you know really enjoyed you know just living in a small community like that we knew everybody in the community uh, really learned the value of hard work I worked as a paper boy starting at age 12 mm. all the way up until I graduated from high school then I moved to California in the early 70s and currently work as a social worker, but continue to have that small town values and, you know, like the value of hard work. So again, I really just appreciate the conversation this morning. Oh, Salman, we'll appreciate your call. Um, it's great to hear about, about your family. Uh, let me go to Regina in San Francisco. Regina, thanks for waiting as well. Hi, thanks. I'm fascinated with this conversation. I, not sure if you call my family working class I was from. My father was on lineman in National Guard, but there was no college. They owned one little house. But anyway, none of us, we were a massive family. None of us went to college. We're a white family. And so I worked my way from, from cleaning to in these wealthy homes working as, as in the role of house manager. I worked in a lot of wealthy homes. And I, I, I've been a fly on the wall, seeing that there's everything from estate managers to house managers to to housekeeping staff 
you know, housekeeping executives and down to housekeeper and laundress. And so it really caught me about, about the laundress. Uh, when I, what I've seen in these homes, these wealthy homes, most of the, the, the um, housekeeping and cleaning staff and laundresses, they're, they're white, they're, they're white or they're mostly a lot of Spanish speaking. But I've wondered where, you know, where are these black working class workers uh, now some of these now for me I I just worked my way up to the home management I it was just a lot of as one of this house these house managers left the job she said it's your job now I'm white I'm college educated I I cannot do other people's laundry. I won't lower myself, but this is your job now. You're going to be house manager, and this is not rocket science. Mm, and interesting. She, she said a lot of these wealthy people, they don't care anymore. They want everyone there to do to do everyone. So even these higher-ups, house managers, are also doing laundry. now. So, well, the devaluing, sorry to interrupt you, Regina, there, but uh, we are coming close to the end of the hour. But the, but the, re, the devaluing, you know, is clearly something that still persists, which is what you've tried to point out to us, Blair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the, you know, the work is very different um, to do um, household management in, um, and, and to compare that to being a laundress in, at the turn of the 20th century. But um, I, I do hear from so many who are still doing household work or doing domestic work or cleaning hotels who are suffering from many of the same kinds of insults as previous generations and um, devalued in, in similar kinds of ways. Well, Matt writes, thank you, Dr. Kelly. I'm a labor historian who has been greatly influenced by your work. <laughs> Matt's right. Thank you so much for this book. Um, I really appreciate you coming on to talk with us about it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. It's called Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class by Blair L. M. Kelly. My thanks to Jericho Reininger and Susie Britton for producing today's segment and to the listeners who called in with their, with their experiences. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. 
Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.